Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, uh, but please call me Mike. Today, my guest is Dr. Peter McGuire, and we will be talking about a book he co-authored, Breathe, A Life and Flow, which is the autobiography of Hicks and Gracie, and it's out with Day Street in 2021. Peter McGuire is the author of several books, including Law and War, Facing Death in Cambodia, and Tie Stick. McGuire has taught uh, law, theory of war, and the history of surfing at Columbia University, Bard College, and University of North Carolina at Wilmington. He founded the Fainting Robin Foundation, which provides financial support to independent scholars, writers, and thinkers whose work falls outside the mainstream. It is a scholar-led, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that rewards genuinely independent intellectual work. Peter. Welcome back yes. to New Books in History. You've been Thank on a you. couple of times over the years. Yeah, always a pleasure. Yeah, the, um, I had you on um, a year or so ago to talk about Tie Stick, your history of surfers and marijuana smuggling, which takes us from the beaches of California and Hawaii uh, into the jungles of Southeast Asia and even into the prisons of uh, communist Vietnam and the Khmer Rouge Cambodia. And as a, as a surfer and a, a Southeast Asianist, uh, I love that book. Might have loved it for a couple other reasons too. Um, but now as someone who's studied, practiced, and taught Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for, I think I'm just, I'm just a few months shy of 25 years Wow! Uh, that I've been involved in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I was really excited that you were involved with uh, Breathe, A Life and Flow, um, because Hicks and Gracie is truly this mythic character in uh, the martial arts world. But before we get into the the book and the life and times of Hicks and Gracie, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to be the writer that you are and, and work on, you know, this, this wide range of projects. Uh, I guess I get bored easily. And <laughs> um, I, my real specialty was the law and theory of war. I got my doctorate at Columbia and studied under Brigadier General Telford Taylor, who was chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. My great-grandfather was a judge at Nuremberg, um, and my first job out of graduate school was documenting Khmer Rouge war crimes in Cambodia. Um, at the time, the security situation in Cambodia was pretty bad. The UN was pulling out of their occupation. It was a pretty anarchic place, and there was need to have physical security in the forms of martial arts and small arms and common sense. Um, so I initially started uh, training in Jeet Kune Do and kickboxing. And, and then uh, we all heard about the, the Garcia brothers at the time, you know, these Mexican guys, they're really good wrestlers. And then, then we all learned that the, that the Garcia brothers were in fact the Gracie brothers, and and to stand up fighters like us, it was pretty terrifying actually. Um, and I wound up teaching Gracie Jiu Jitsu in Cambodia. Was uh, the first teacher there. Yeah, and, what, what, year, what year was that? 
94. Uh, but I really kind of started taking off in about 96, 97. I had a regular class with a lot of former French military guys and a lot mm-hmm. of very tough, tough guys. And well, uh, I, literally 25 years later, I was teaching uh, BJJ in Cambodia <laughs> in in 2019. So, but you, I mean, if you're doing it in the, the mid 90s, um, yeah. boy. Was, at the at the uh, at the time, it was called the International Youth Club, and it was the what's now the U.S. Embassy. And so we were the biggest, most important thing for me was to bring rolls of duct tape to duct tape the thin little aerobics mats together on the tiles. So we were training on tile with these thin, crappy little mats that were just like styrofoam with a little bit of. Um, some kind of plastic around them. And, uh, it was, it was rough. They were all <laughs> really tough guys, all really good tie boxers, real fighters. And, um, you had to prove it to them back then. That was, that was the way it was, you know, you, you had to make converts on them. So I often say to Hickson that I was kind of the John Bap, John, the Baptist of jujitsu, because I, tr- I taught in West Australia. I taught in Maine. I taught in Oregon. And it was always, oh, I know this jujitsu. Oh, that won't work on me. And then it kind of turns into a fight and then you're nice. And I was always careful not to humiliate anybody and let them save face. And then they became my students. And and in many cases, some of my best friends. So that that was interesting. Let's put a pin in that because I want to circle back around to have you explain like what is Brazilian jiu-jitsu because I think the vast majority of uh, new books and history listeners may not be exactly aware. But um, just to finish up sort of with, with your intellectual trajectory, so you're working in Cambodia in the 90s. That leads to your publication. Well, first, first you did a book on Nuremberg, Lawn, Lawn War, and then, and then you um, – uh, wrote on Cambodia and and it's both both the history but also sort of self reflective. I mean, borderline borderline Gonzo journalism. Yeah. That's <laughs> I mean, well, it was it was my case study in a way. You know, Nuremberg was very academic. It was really about the law and theory of war from the Hague and Geneva Conventions forward, the expansion of international law to create things like crimes against peace, crimes against humanity. Uh, trying to hold senior leaders accountable uh, successfully and unsuccessfully. And then I wanted to see how that played out in the real world. I got my PhD when I was 28 and I felt like a little bit fraudulent in a way. And I wanted to go into the real world and see how these principles and ideas worked out where the rubber hit the road. And Cambodia at the time was the the greatest anomaly in the world for international law. You had a genocide, you had 2 million roughly out of a population of 10 million killed in three years, 10 months and 20 days, and no one was held accountable. And in fact, the perpetrators were rewarded. So that really was a bee in my bonnet and a very glaring thing. And so I went to Cambodia and I would say that's where my real education began because you had a Buddhist culture that didn't believe in vengeance and the Nuremberg model really didn't fit. So the one size fits all model broke down very quickly for me where I would meet with survivors of genocide that said, no, we, we don't, 
we want to dig a big hole and bury all this history and forget about it because it's only going to infect the young with vengeance. So yeah, yeah, that's you know that's really interesting. When I was in Cambodia, I had a uh, at some point over the years, I had a conversation with somebody. Um, and I was sort of, you know, giving them this line of, you know, the, the never forget, never yeah, forget. Yeah, exactly. And they said, well, what, what about the right to forget? And it was a, it was a Cambodian who was using the, I think that's a, um, a European legal term regards to, to internet, uh, um, standards and so that there, there should be a right to forget and, and why can't we forget? And, mm-hmm. you know, here, here I am, you know, white academic, relatively privileged, like who, who am I to tell you that you have to remember this that's exactly uh, exactly really what me, happened it caught me intellectually flat-footed and i had no response well and it's funny too because i got a lot of i got i was very threatening to the un as they were pulling out and they were calling it a great success and i remember meeting with this one un official and she told me um oh don't talk to cambodians they'll only confuse you and in fact, they did confuse me, but it was from that confusion that I, I really began to learn and I began to see and, and look at some of this stuff. But it, but it, again, it was like, you know, you go down the, the, into the Alice in Wonderland, you know, I mean, yeah. the guy who, who kind of, uh, I had the same experience that you described with was a guy named M. Chan and he was one of the survivors of Tool Slang prison. So prison roughly 20,000 went in, roughly 20 people survived. And he survived because he was able to carve effigies of Pol Pot. He listened to his wife get tortured to death in the room next to him. And I was not, you know, going to tell that guy that he was wrong or that he should rethink it or whatever. You know, again, like you said, um, you know, trafficking in the pain of others is, is, uh, not as simple as people like to make it out to be if they haven't done it in the in the field where you know like I said the rubber hits the road yeah yeah and you and so in what became facing death in Cambodia you talk about working uh interviewing some of the survivors but also some of the prison um guards and the photographer and and others and and so then you know that, that was facing death in Cambodia and then your next book um would seemingly be out of left field, right? Uh, tie stick. It's about surfers and pot smugglers, right? But there's actually a, a connection to Cambodia. Yeah, and it's also semi-autobiographical. I grew up in the world of surfing and pot smuggling, and um, and I'd kind of it was interesting. I I wrote the book, and and I had a really good reviewer at Columbia University Press, uh, Princeton University's Anne McClintock. And, and at the end of it, Anne said, wow, this is a really interesting book and, and I really think it's great, but there's one thing missing. And I said, really, what's that? She said, Peter Maguire. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, how do you know all this? Why do these people all talk to you? How do you establish this trust? And so, so I kind of had to take off my clothes and admit that I'd been part of this culture, had trafficked in pot. And, um, and what really kind of got me was when I was in Tool Slang prison and I found the confessions of uh, four Americans who had been captured and killed by the Khmer Rouge. They were all surfers. They were all Californians via Hawaii, like myself. And 
in the course of my inquiry about, and, and people at the time were speculating that they were CIA agents. And I knew immediately that they were pot smugglers, it just intuitively. And uh, so it led to me meeting a big smuggler who it, it, he didn't tell me for many years was the one who was supposed to supply their load. The guys vanished off the face of the earth. No one knew what they those had. Those guys that wound up in dual slang? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, tied to them. Okay. yeah, so the four Americans were in this this horrible torture and execution center called Tool Slang S21. They were tortured and interrogated. They all confessed wild confessions to being CIA agents. But as anyone who knows interrogation knows, at a certain point, people will confess to anything to end the torture. So uh, it led to, you know, through the surfing world down um, at a right point that I've surfed my whole life that used to be a place where smugglers would go on the lamb to hide out. Um, I met a former smuggler that, you know, knew an incredible amount about this case, was equally fascinated. And so then I trained him on how to how to do interviews and oral history. So then we teamed up. Um, and began doing a massive oral history of the marijuana trade. And then it was, uh, it was interrupted by the feds, uh, and he was a guest of the state for a couple of years. And so that was precarious because um, they thought I was his co-conspirator and other stuff like that. And so it led to some legal wrangles um, and that we sorted out and, and it was fine in the end. But yeah, but it was it was right after 9-11. He was getting money from offshore. Money laundering equals terrorism. I was traveling to Southeast Asia all the time. So, you know, they wanted they wanted to debrief me and all this. And I, I refused and uh, and I didn't. And life went on. And but yeah. it was it was not your average academic uh, experience. <laughs> yeah. and, and then eventually Ty Stick came out and it's a fabulous yeah. book. And yeah. um I think there's two two episodes of new books uh, interviews with you on it, so people can check the back catalog yeah. uh, for that. And so, um, I guess through the need for some self defense when you're working in Cambodia, you you picked up Jeet Kune Do and then eventually um, Jiu Jitsu, and then um, you had um, you know that that that's was that your initial connection to martial arts and. Well, it was graduate school and just being so sedentary and not being able to surf like I once had been able to. So I was lucky I met a, a world-class kickboxer named John Peretti, who actually wound up being one of the first MMA promoters of extreme fighting. Uh, and he was a, a remarkable kickboxer with a with a right leg that it, he kicked off his front foot and, and had a right leg that had a mind of its own. And um, was a real fighter, you know, street fighter, and uh, and it was very practical fighting. And and we had a lot of great guys come through his his very small school in New York City, like Igor Zinoviev, who who beat Mario Sperry. Um, John discovered Igor, who went on to become Epstein's driver and bodyguard, which was really weird. But uh, but Igor was an amazing fighter. Um, but he had been, I think, on the Russian judo team, professional kickboxer, former Russian military. Um, and and so 
you know, it was an interesting group that w came through there and, and Peretti approached martial arts very practically and he stole pieces from different martial arts that worked. Like when we did knife fighting, he brought in this amazing Russian fencer that was like the fastest human I've ever seen in my life, but could only go in a straight line. He couldn't go laterally. He brought in sumo wrestlers. He had real respect for wrestlers and, uh, and was very afraid, not afraid, but very wary of wrestlers. And so then he went to train with Gene LaBelle. He got his black belt from Gene. We got to train with Gene a little bit. So grappling was something we did, but did bit kind of crudely with striking on the ground and things like that. So it wasn't traditional. We did small arms with the, the uh, two brothers in Texas called the Oxleys that were amazing, you know, kind of short range practical shooting. Um, so it was a real seminar in martial arts. And uh, I was very fortunate. I took, you know, Wing Chun in Chinatown in New York City. I did a lot of Wing Chun, mostly just the hands part. I boxed, then kickboxed. So like I said, John took the best pieces of each martial art and kind of combined them. And, you know, he turned me into a left-handed fighter when I'm right-handed. And I have a real stiff jab that's hard to get through. And it was it got real good at not being able to be taken down. So yeah. in a funny way, I was more like a Luta Libre fighter, which is a... Uh, the the style that we, we'll get we, to we, we can get into that yeah yeah no, but i just i'm just um feel like i've been uh uh following your footsteps i mean i i started kickboxing in graduate school out of stress and also i i started actually when i was in france doing research in the colonial archives in aix-en-provence which is a nine-hour drive from biarritz from surfing yeah so I wasn't I wasn't surfing all week. I, every weekend I'd try and sneak off to go surf, uh, and so I had to do the next dumb thing. Um, started kickboxing, uh, you know, just outside of Marseille and uh, in France, where they really enjoyed kicking the big six foot three white guy. American oh, I bet guy that was a in the tough. Face. Oh, I, was, I was real popular, real tall American guy who had no idea what he was doing. They loved sparring with me. Yeah, and that's a and tough that, town. That, le that led to uh, led to jujitsu um, when I got back to the states. So. Um, Let's see. Um, how did you first come to meet uh, Hicks and Gracie? And 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 and, and very very briefly, we'll get more into his life, obviously. Sure. But very briefly, like who who is Hicks and Gracie? Because to those who live outside of the cult like world, right. which you and I inhabit with jujitsu and mixed martial arts, um, the name may not be that familiar. So very quickly, who is he, and how did you come to meet him? Well, Hicks and Gracie is the probably the greatest living uh, jiu-jitsu fighter. He uh, was undefeated in, in what's called sport jiu-jitsu, which is uh, a, you know, a rule-based uh, kimono-based form of grappling that they start on their feet, much like judo, um, but also fought in the ring uh, in what's called volley tudo matches, which is really anything goes. And back then it was Headbutts were allowed, knees, elbows, really everything but biting and eye gouging and groin grabbing. And so this is, this is in Brazil that he's yes in Brazil no, no holds barred fighting, um, right? Both sport jujitsu, uh, but also these uh, this this open combat um, yeah uh, valetudo yeah and so. The Gracie family had moved to Los Angeles into to the South Bay, 
and and Hickson was the star of the family. He had a kind of a falling out with his older brother and broke off on his own and started his own gym. Yeah, we'll, we'll, um, get, to, we'll get to okay. that. Yeah. And and so he was uh, training a friend of mine named Todd Irvin, who was an excellent college wrestler, big, strong, pretty famous model actually, but a big, strong guy. And uh, Todd Irvin spoke very highly and said, "Man, you got to see this guy. You know, it's just there's nothing I can do." I went in, uh, and, and I was a good surfer and the Gracie's all surfed. So it was very easy. You know, we became fast friends. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't a threat. I was there to learn. I was a good student and, and I immediately just started taking a few privates in the summers with Hickson. And then I eventually started going to the, the truly terrifying, uh, men's daytime open classes, which was my friend best described as lunchtime on the prison yard. <laughs> <laughs> this, and this is in LA in the mid nineties. Yeah. This would have yeah. been LA 92, 93. Oh, so down in, down in Torrance. Uh, no, in on Pico and Sepulveda. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Boy, yeah. yeah. In, um, in this funky, funky, uh, old karate, Japanese karate school that Hickson rented yeah. and, uh, you know, no showers, one toilet and, uh, just a, a really tough old fashioned martial arts academy. Yeah. So, so just, just very quickly, what is, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or Gracie jiu-jitsu like as, as a sport, what's the, what's the rule base? How do you, how do you describe it to, again, those, those, those are people who are outside of our little cult. I would say it it would look similar to judo to the non-initiated, except that in jiu-jitsu, you're allowed to fight on the ground as long as as really you want. And you're you have much more liberties in terms of rules. You're allowed much more chokes and joint locks, and it has a huge um offensive vocabulary. What's very unique about it is they have a whole arsenal that they can employ off their back. Most people in fighting think, oh gosh, I pinned him, I won. Well, in, in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, you, know, you can have incredible fighters that are deadly from their back. So for a smaller person like me, the fact that it was almost Klaus Witzian in that it was it was a kind of defensive offense and uh and and that appealed to me that it wasn't just you know like wing chun was pure offense some kickboxing schools pure offense and when you're not that big it doesn't work you know and and i actually we fought and you see what works you see what doesn't work i was a good counter puncher i was a good you know kind of playing off what people gave me in kickboxing um, and, and also uh, what I really learned from my kickboxing teacher and, and getting to be in the ring with like pro caliber guys was their, what they called ringsmanship, like their ability to kind of act and set traps and lure people in and make people think they were doing better than they were to knock them out. And so I learned a lot of that in kickboxing that I was then able to apply to jujitsu. I already had, uh, I already understood the game. So that helped a lot. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm a bigger guy. I'm six, three yeah. and 200 and more pounds than I'd care to admit. And <laughs> for me, it was like, Oh, wait a minute. There's a martial art where I can sit down. 
<laughs> I can write <laughs> off my back good because I'm 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 kind of lazy. Uh, that's fantastic. I was so tired of after three years of uh, Muay Thai and standing oh, yeah. up. Right, it's like oh, I can sit down and I can actually control the pace. It's not a constant, constant sprint like you get uh, that you often feel in um, in um, kickboxing. Um, so so getting back to the book, um, how did you? how did you come to write this book? Um, I mean, it's, or, I mean, it's, it's, it's Hickson's autobiography. Was it, you, did you draw on your oral history training? Um, yeah. and like, what, what, what was your relationship in the making of the book? Well, Hickson and I became good friends over the years. Um, I think partially because jujitsu was just one small part of my life. I was never a sycophant. Um, I would, I would give him these scenarios that would happen to me and say like, how am I going to pull guard, you know, when there's like five guys around me or, you know, just the odd things that happened to me in Southeast Asia, getting attacked on motorcycles, having to fight on moving motorcycles, um, just, just real practical things. And he was very realistic and honest. And he would say, no, you're right. You know, take that page from the playbook and throw it away. And, uh, and, and, and I think it was, it was curious, you know, it was, it was, he was curious about it. He's a very curious guy. He's smart. He's not dumb at all. And he's not, um, pedantic and kind of stuck in his ways. There were some jujitsu teachers that, that would teach almost a robotic jujitsu that I would know, you know, drilling, drilling, drilling. I would know what the guy was going to do before they did it themselves. So the fact that I came in there as a good stand-up fighter, he liked, and that I wa- I didn't totally surrender to jujitsu either because of the, the situations I was in. I couldn't fight on the ground in mobs and the kind of chaos that I was in. So, um, but I liked it athletically. I liked the kind of kind of shape it kept you in, the workout. I enjoyed it, and I and I enjoyed the the that it was so casual compared to so many other martial arts I had been involved in. That it was it was pretty friendly all in all, and it was very honest. You knew where you stood in the food chain, and back then everybody was kind of a fighter. It wasn't, um, everybody in there was pretty tough and, and was, was, was fighting. It wasn't yeah. just, you know, there wasn't this division between sport jujitsu and, um, and volley tudo or MMA. And, and, and frankly, now I'm, I don't really like MMA, but we can sidebar that and get to yeah, it later. Yeah. yeah. And also just for, for the uninitiated, um, in sport jujitsu, there's no punching or kicking. It's, it's, it's grappling. And, um, those of us who came to it from kickboxing, um, discovered that, well, possibly on the first day, but definitely within the first week, you can spar in jujitsu. You can, at the end of class, you get, you get to do it live. You're not, you're not just faking it. You're not just doing it with, um, you know, with, with, it's not artificial. You, you, you get thrown in the deep end, as we say right away. Um, and, uh, in kickboxing, you can't, you can't spar full speed every day. Um, you destroy your body. And so it, it definitely lets everyone in the room know where you are relative to, um, 
your your level versus versus other people. Um, and I think that's a real eye opener for many people who come from other sports. Where it also lets you know where you are and lets you know where you are. Yeah, and and I think because of that, because you can spar almost right away the impact for personal growth is much more than in some of the striking arts where you might be really good at beating up a heavy bag or you could kick the you know what out of focus mitts and and uh, and tie pads but you never really get to uh get put under so much duress as you would um if you're really sparring kickboxing or really sparring jujitsu so again it, it creates more of a possibility for that uh those those you know, secondary aspects in terms of the physicality, but I think more primary in terms of developing as a person. Mm-hmm. You just get more out of that, more possibility out of jujitsu. Anyway, but so hey, my question was, how did you come to write the book with him though? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we so, had been we had been talking for years and years, yeah. and um, and you know, he would come to my book events and. Uh, and I always kind of kept notes and I was, I was kind of present for a lot of the pivotal moments in his life, uh, both good and bad. And, um, and there were times he turned to me for advice and uh, things of that nature. So I was close with his kids. I was close with his ex-wife. So I really knew everybody and I had wanted to do it for a while. I felt like uh, he had an approach to human performance that applied to almost anything. It wasn't necessarily just about jujitsu. A lot of the things I learned from him, I applied in debating or tense situations in the field, um, big wave riding, uh, especially the breathing. Um, and so I felt like he had a lot to offer and that, uh, he had never really articulated it in a way there were little bits and pieces, maybe, you know, when he did that documentary breathe or, uh, choke, you got to see some of it, but, um, I felt uniquely qualified to do it. And then the COVID year hit and it was a good year for both of us. And so I just started interviewing him. I did about a week of interviews in LA and then kind of transcribed and put that together and then just would talk to him every Friday and, and kind of fill in the holes and, and press him a bit on some of the things that he said and get him to expand some of the things that he said. And, um, and yeah, it went very quickly. I think we did the whole book in six months. Yeah. So that's, I'm just trying to think through the mechanics of that and, and, and how different that might be than your traditional oral history projects. Or when you're, you sit down with them, ask them questions, transcribe, do some editing, run it. So, so it's, it's, it's a joint project. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, and then I read them the whole book. I mean, then, you know, I just, I, in about, I don't know, four sittings, I just read them every page. Stop. Okay. You all right with that? No, I want to add this. Oh, and then, you know, it was kind of funny. He's memory is a a really interesting thing. And I know this with oral history. So sometimes he would say, oh, well, you know, didn't I tell you about the the Ganesh or the the Golden Eagle or something? And I'd go, the what? And then he'd tell me this unbelievable 
piece of the story that he had left out just by omission. And, and so then I'd have to kind of figure out how I was going to shoehorn that in. And, uh, but I'm open to that because I understand that memory is imperfect and it's not linear and often things trigger memory. So, um, it, it, it was, it was fun, you know, it was hard at times cause a lot of painful stuff we had to get really get into. And I told him, I, I really, if he wasn't really prepared to get into the, into the, do a real book, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to destroy our friendship. I didn't want to destroy my reputation, his reputation. So I said, you know, if we're going to do this, you know, we got to really do it. Yeah. Well, so let's, I mean, technically this is new books in history. So let's, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the history of Brazilian jujitsu. I mean, how, how do we get this odd Japanese Latin American hybrid martial art? I mean, why, why is it Brazilian jujitsu? How did, how did Japanese grappling wind up in Brazil of all places? Right. Well, the most, you know, the the main kind of story of origin is Hideo Maeda, who's a remarkable guy. I mean, uh, really interesting, who's one of Jap- Japan's great judo fighters. And he uh, is a bit of a loose cannon and he likes to gamble. He likes to fight. And so he's not that welcome in Jigoro Kano's uh, Kodokan, the famous judo school. So he winds up going to, well, he goes to the United States to do a demonstration at West Point, Columbia University, my alma mater, New York Athletic Club. And he fights uh, these kind of exhibition grappling matches against wrestlers. And then he actually wound up opening a jujitsu school, I think on Broadway or Amsterdam, you know, in I forget exactly the year, but it's like in the twenties or something of that nature. And then he winds up fighting these kind of prize fights and he fights the first one at, um, at this kind of fake Japanese amusement park in Brooklyn against a guy named butcher boy. And who knows how much is fiction, how much isn't, but I, I found newspaper stories about all this. And then he wound up going to North Carolina and Alabama and California and, and, and fighting all these people all over. And he was a very small guy. I think he was less than 150 pounds and five foot four or five. So it was very remarkable that he did as well as he did. Then he wound up going back to Europe and prize fighting in Europe, doing very well. Then he went to Spain. Then he went to Cuba, um, fighting the whole time. And then eventually he wound up in Brazil and uh, there was a large Japanese population in Brazil at the time. So there was a community of judo players. Um, and then Maida met um, Gustav Gracie, who was Hickson Gracie's grandfather and taught uh, a small class in kind of Amazonia in uh, Bellum. And, um, and those students, you know, some of them were the Gracie children, Carlos Gracie, Helio Gracie, Hickson Gracie's father, I think was too young to be a direct student. Um, but the, the Gracies picked this up and they, they, they learned this original jujitsu and then they, they moved to Rio de Janeiro. The father was a wild man, Gustav Gracie. He was involved in he was prize they're, fighting and dynamite they're, 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 they're kind of they're kind of all wild men 
in the yeah, they're rogues, and they're <laughs> yeah. So th yeah, these are Scotsmen that migrated to Brazil, and the other side of the Gracies, you know, moved to New York, and and uh, you know, one of them became Alexander Hamilton's partner, and Gracie Mansion in New York City was his house. So it's a it's a remarkable family. Is, and is there a, there's a direct connection between Hickson, yeah, yeah, and uh, that's Archibald uh, Gracie. Okay, and, and so then, and another another served under the Confederacy. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was a fame famous Robin general. Lee. Yeah, and, and and killed in the in the war. Were um did the family that side of the family were they part of those um American Confederates that left the United States after the war and, and went to Brazil? No, that's a real, no, no, a real phenomenon. And there, there's there's one there's one section where they uh, I think the Confederate flag is part of the. The, the state uh no they were um actually uh the the gracie that fought with the confederacy had gone to the south to work and his father was a big uh, merchant in new york city so they were really a northeastern family but this the one son developed cultural ties to the south and became a southerner and then when and he was at west point also and, and there's a famous story about him getting in a fight at West Point and I think getting beaten up pretty badly and not snitching out who beat him up. And Robert E. Lee really liked him and thought highly of him. And he becomes famous for something called the Gracie Salient in forget which battle, but a fa the battle where he's killed. And uh, and he was uh, supposedly a remarkable general. And uh, Lee was very was very shaken when he was killed because he relied heavily on him. Um, mm -hmm. and, but, but those two sides they, they of the were, fence. But they were a Northern family. They weren't a Southern. Yeah. Because yeah. there is that component uh, of the, uh, there, there's that connection between the American Confederacy and Brazil because slavery survives much longer in Brazil and a number of Confederates right. in there. And there's a, there's a still bizarre sort of like cosplay um, events in Brazil where they dress up like Confederates and hide the stars and bars, but that wouldn't, that, okay. That's just, uh, yeah, no. And so, so Hickson's father and uncle, they wind up in Rio. They're, you know, aggressive young men and they start fighting and they start challenging people and saying, you know, we have this system, we'll fight anybody. And it's called the Gracie challenge. And they open their first school, um, and you know they're taking on all comers and uh and and, and, and hickson's father is helio gracie yes uh, who uh becomes very prominent for uh as an instructor of the martial art but also a fighter and so one would imagine that he's this massive imposing guy right like he's a giant fighter right yeah but he's like 140 pounds and, and interesting too, they have some bizarre belief system that's, you know, part theosophy, part Rosicrucian mixed with, um, uh, polygamy, you know, there's no way around it that I think the, you know, between Helio Gracie and Carlos Gracie, the two brothers, um, I forget the exact tally, but it's over 20 kids by nine different women or something. And, and, and the lion's share of them are boys and they're all trained to be fighters. And so 
these and, two. And, they, and there's there's like I don't not numerology, but the letter equivalent of numerology. Yeah. yeah. Have an R. Uh, yeah. So we say Hickson, and that's the Portuguese pronunciation. It, yeah. It's, it's spelled Rickson, right? Yeah. Uh, Rickson, it would be Rickson and Relson and Ralph. Yeah. But it's Hickson and, and Helson and Half. Yeah. Um, amongst some of the, the more prominent fighters. And that's, and they have a sort of a, there's a sort of a spiritual belief around that naming in there. Yeah. Are, are, are they, is, is the Gracie family sort of blending things and coming up with their own yeah. sort of Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's Carlos Gracie is the, is the theoretician, you know, and mm. he, uh, he has kind of the love of his life die young. I think it affects him very heavily. Uh, and then he um, adopts a, a very sp- specific diet that's all based on food combining, but a more or less a vegetarian, low-fat mm-hmm. diet that mm-hmm. he's very strict about. He's very much a naturalist and you know believes in sunbathing and um, and making babies. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So <laughs> without, I mean, you know, be, being respectful, I mean, and I know that Hickson is your friend and your teacher, but um, the, I mean, this Hickson's origin story, I mean, this is, he, he didn't, he did not know till later in his life. And this is in the book that um, who he thought was his mother was not his biological mother. He thought his mother is the woman who raised him. He considers his mother is a, uh, is a white Brazilian. Um, and he discovers later in life that his biological mother is Afro-Brazilian. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that happen? And well, it's interesting and, because and, and did that, go ahead. I don't know, being respectful, did what kind of an impact would that have on him and without being too Freudian? I mean, yeah. well, what's interesting is when we used to see pictures of the Gracie brothers, we would look at these pictures and say like, wait a minute, that guy's got red hair and freckles. That guy's got dark skin and he's built like, you know, like a NFL linebacker. Like there's no genetic connection to these guys, you know? And so, so, you know, what Hickson's his, the woman he thought was his mother couldn't have children. So his father had children with one was I think the secretary at his academy, but Hickson's mother was was the housekeeper, and she was African Brazilian, um, and you know, and and so he and I think three of his his bro- two of his brothers came, were her children, but you know they never knew it. The one the she never raised them. Well, she did raise them as the as the nanny. But his mother was there for all intents and purposes, as far as they were concerned, that was their mother. And that, you know, they had this very loving nanny who was in their lives and a very important person in their life. But, yeah, they didn't know. And he didn't find out until he was relatively old, um, like well into his teenage years, almost grown up, basically. And there's Um, another another moment in the book where he's with his father and. uh, Helio takes him to an apartment in Rio and the door opens and there's three boys in there. No, he yeah. says, he says, would you like to have more brothers? And he said, oh yeah, that'd be great, dad. And he said, okay, get in the car. And they drive to this apartment and it's the, it's the maid or the, the lady who runs the academy that he knows already. And she cracks the door open. He sees her face and all these little heads start popping out 
under her in the door. And he said, these are your brothers. I'd like you to meet them. And and it was hard on him because he knew it affected his mom, his the woman he thought with his mother, Margarita. Uh, it was very hard for her. And, and she suffered and was depressed and he would see her crying. And uh, and he realized that, you know, this worked for his father and his uncle, but didn't necessarily work for his mother. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it, he didn't replicate it, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there's a section in the book where he, he openly talks about this. He says that basically his father and his uncle are, are, are building their own little army, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Fighters. And well, um, if that is the goal, uh, <laughs> this like quasi eugenics, like project, um, <laughs> Can can build a little army and maybe from our sort of uh, bourgeois normative standards, that's not doesn't quite conform to what we understand as a healthy family structure. But it builds something really special for the Gracie family, right? Like you, they it is really successful in creating this army of brothers, and and and, bro- and brother loosely understood because like, there's cousins and uncles and all that. But there, but there it's it. It, they turn this family into this force, right? And it's Darwinian. I mean, it's tough. Like, you know, they're fighting as little kids. And, you know, and, and Hickson tells this story about he had this one rival cousin and that, you know, the cousin, you know, they would always go back and forth and they were kind of closely matched. But if if the cousin got really mad, he would bite his thumb. And so, and, and he would fight one-handed and then Hickson could beat him. And we're talking about like five-year-olds. And so, you know, you just see this kind of, and, and some crack under it. You know what I mean? Not everybody becomes Hickson. You know, there are some that are great teachers. There are some that are great technicians. There are some that walk away from the whole thing. There are some that die. And yeah, so, you know, get pretty into, uh, substance abuse and yeah. And so it's behavior. Yeah. So it's not without, uh, casualties yeah. and, and collateral damage. And I think, you know, the way that those two brothers, Hickson's father and uncle looked at it was that that, that was the price of admission and they were not disciplinarians in the sense that they they would tell you hey if you do that that's going to take you down a bad road but if you chose to go down that road they'd pick you up and dust you off if you if you came back but they weren't going to go chase you and find you and say hey never do that again you're grounded it wasn't that kind of a thing it was it was interesting in the way you know that they taught their kids jujitsu like hickson said when I was really little, I would just go to the academy, put on a gi and play soccer with a paper ball. So the academy and the school we call an academy was meant fun to me. And my father would say things like, hey, if you if you win the match, you know, if you lose the match, you get two presents. If you win the match, you get one. So it wasn't victory at all costs. It was more about never quitting. And that's, and, and it's, and I have to admit, 
I employed some of those tactics with my own sons in teaching them jujitsu and that it was, it was about not quitting and, and staying in it and, and just having the physical and mental discipline. And I have to say it's really served them because my older son is a really dangerous 16 year old blue belt. Just the guy you don't want to have to deal with. Cause he's like, six feet, 155 pounds, cross country runner. So he never gets tired, strong, like a spider monkey and just tenacious. My younger son was really good until he was about 12 or 13, but he didn't like it. And he, and he was good at it, but he would have to get mad. And then he would, he would get really good, but I could tell he didn't like it. And he's become an unbelievable ballet dancer. And and he got to a certain point. I said, okay, you only have to train with me a little bit at the house. You don't have to go to classes anymore. If you got hurt in jujitsu and it affected your ballet, I w- couldn't live with myself. So he trains a little bit with me at home just to, to put the time in. I don't want him to let it go completely. But I see that the habits they develop through jujitsu have really served them in everything that they do in their lives. And they they have a work ethic I don't see in too many of their modern cell phone addicted instant gratification peers. You know, um, so a couple of the surfer kids are have some grit, but I don't see that kind of grit that much anymore. You know, I'm sure like me growing up in Hawaii, as you did, you were playing three sports a year. You were surfing, you know. I was getting in tons of fights as a kid in the park, at the beach, whatever. And it was just part of our, a very different kind of upbringing. And, um, and anyway, so yeah, my kids, I see them a little bit as anomalies, you know? Yeah. So let's, let's, um, let's circle back to, uh, the, the Gracie family. So, um, they're, they're developing this army of brothers and cousins and, and they have these, these famous uh, training sessions where the family's sparring against each other. The um, Helio uh, establishes a school in, in Rio, which becomes the school. And, and for, again, for the uninitiated, um, many practitioners recognize Helio Gracie as really sort of like the foundational figure of, of the school. And there's a lot of emphasis on lineage. So, you know, you, I gotta, I gotta look up to you because you studied under Hickson who studied under Helio, whereas I, I studied, I got my black belt from Claudio Franza who got his from Francisco Mansour, who got his from Helio. So it's like, there, but that's a good lineage. No, no, you know, know, it's good. But but like, but that's like actually for the, for the uninitiated listener, that's actually something like you and I would talk about and sort of suss out and sort of try. It's Yale and it's Yale versus Harvard, basically like at that level, like they're both high level Ivy league degrees, you know, but they, but they, my, my point here is that they, they're creating a name and, um, I, I, I call it Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, many people call it Gracie jiu-jitsu uh, because it's so associated with that family and with that, um, uh, particularly with Helio. And then, but then there's even some debate about the Helio and, and Carlos and, and all that. We, 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 we can go on forever on uh, jiu-jitsu politics. But um, so this is in the, in the 60s, in the 70s, um, in into the 1980s. Um, 
Uh, Hickson's becoming quite famous in Brazil. He's winning all sorts of major Valley Tudo fights. Um, he um, at one point Bruce Weber, the fashion photographer, um, shoots him and um, takes some famous photographs. Um, um, that was actually so. Actually, I, I interviewed Buzzy Kerbox um, last year on his book, and and Bruce Weber um, shot Buzzy Kerbox and launched Buzzy Kerbox's modeling career. I also worked with Bruce Weber, but had neither the modeling career of Buzzy Kerbox, the surfing career of Buzzy Kerbox, or the jujitsu career of Hickson. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so, somewhere I somewhere in an issue of Italian Vogue, there's a picture of me in, in 1985 at the Holly Kalani, and uh, Bruce Weber shaved my head and put me out of work for modeling for three months because nobody else wanted a, uh, a model with a shaved head at that point. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so he's, he's, Hickson is the man in Rio. He's the man in Brazil, right? And you've got all sorts of, I mean, I, we don't have time to get into it, but like all kinds of stories about like uh, dojo invasion, showing up at other academies and, and fighting and, and so forth. And then there's this jump to the United States. And um, it's really sort of led by Horian Gracie, one of, one of his brothers. Um, what is Horian's project of bringing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu to California and to the United States? Well, he brings the Gracie challenge, the same thing that his father, um, you know, did in Rio in, you know, decades earlier and comes to America and basically says, I'll fight anyone, any style. um, And and he does and um, and is very successful. Um, And again, he's almost like, you know, a John the Baptist type of figure. And so. He's also smart about it in that he doesn't hurt people unless they're trying to hurt him. And he converts again for the sorry to interrupt, but for the uninitiated, you can defeat somebody in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu without doing physical damage to them. It's not like kickboxing where you win by knocking somebody out or having somebody beat up so bad they can't come out of their corner or their, their corner throws the, the towel in, right? So in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's a series of joint locks, elbow, shoulder, uh, knee, ankle locks, um, also chokes. Where yeah, but most famously the choke. The chokes, you know, right. Because, when, when yeah. You, you would, um, it's, it's, you're denying blood flow um, to the brain and some people will go to sleep if they, if they, they don't tap. And so they, you can, you lose, you can lose the fight, ideally not by getting your arm broken or by getting put to sleep, uh, but by, by tapping, by submitting saying, okay, you won. So he, you know, in these challenges, um, when they're showing off Gracie jujitsu, they're defeating people and maybe not even leaving a mark on them, but defeating them in a way that, anybody who's ever been choked out um is is psychologically like man you know you lost (laughs) like you're you're losing consciousness and if you didn't tap you you are no or if they or if they didn't stop choking you i mean at a certain point the choice is theirs if they keep choking you you're gonna die yeah and and so your life is literally in their hands yeah and so and it is weird when you get choked out because when you come back a lot of times you don't remember what happened. 
You don't re- you don't remember where you are. I mean, it's it's. Uh, my, my, yeah. the, I got my black belt from Claudio Franza, and, and one of his favorite stories was uh, when he's teaching in Brazil, and a and a student got choked out, and he, he went to wake him up, and um, uh, everyone was gathered around him, and the and the student said, "Master, what are you doing in my bedroom?" <laughs> and he, he had no idea where he was. Yeah. I've, 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 I had the same thing. I got choked out one time in class, and like had this insane little dream, and I woke up on the couch and couldn't figure out what everybody was doing in my room. Um, yeah, and everybody's looking at you, and you're like, "Whoa, what? Why, it's why is not, it?" It's not just losing a match; like it puts you into a pretty intense space, right? Yeah. So, so they're they're doing these challenges, and then what's what does um, Horian has this sort of brainchild and this business plan that yeah. becomes this this competition that that eventually becomes the ultimate fighting championship? Well, it's, the, uh, yeah, it's 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 two things. It's the yeah. first thing is he puts out a, a videotape called Gracie mm. in Action, yeah. and you have to remember this is the pre-internet era, right? Yeah. And and so. Those videotapes back then were like religious artifacts. I was and, still happy when I finally got a copy of Gracie in Action. Yeah, and and everybody'd come over and you'd watch it and you'd try to figure out what they were doing and you couldn't believe it. And then you're seeing the the fights from Rio that were brutal and we'd never seen anything like that in the in America. And so that really got the groundswell started but as you said the the first the thing that just blew the lid off it was the ultimate fighting championship the ufc and what year, i was the first ufc first ufc is the fall of 1993 in denver colorado right? yeah in denver colorado and i had spent that summer training at hickson's academy and on pico boulevard when he was training his younger brother hoist gracie to fight in the first UFC. And everyone knew it was not no mystery. It was not even a debate that Hickson was by 10, the best fighter in the family that Hoyce was the younger brother who appeared pretty unthreatening. He was small, he was slim and they chose him almost to be the poster child because he, he didn't look like a fighter. Yeah. And I mean, so if, if, if the listeners haven't seen pictures of Hicks and Gracie, he is a physical specimen. He is like a Greek God. He is in such incredible shape. He's just, just built like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, he's just so imposing. So like if he, if he comes in to the ultimate fighting championship and wins, it's like, well, okay. The guy's a physical specimen. Yeah. But, but, um, and he's also, uh, he's also scary. He's, he looks scary. scary. He has that. I mean, he his face is is very calm and serene, but with this level of intensity um, that is is really difficult to describe. But um, his brother Hoyce, I mean, he just looks like a yeah, an average guy. I mean, he's not yeah. a physical. He's in good shape. He's in really good shape. I mean, he's a, he's a great. I mean, fantastic jujitsu practitioner, absolutely, but not someone that like. You know, your your average fight fan who's never seen Valley Tudo before was there for the first UFC is going to go, oh, man, look at that guy. He's he's gigantic. No, no, no. He's just an average looking guy. Well, and given the depth of talent in the family at that time at the UFC where you had Henzo Gracie, who was an extremely experienced fighter at that point in Brazil, 
you had the Machado brothers, you had some who had won everything. So it was an unusual choice, really, um, because, uh, you know, Hori and Gracie took a gamble and the gamble paid off. And um, and so they picked Hoyce, the unassuming younger brother. And he went through the competition of yeah. of monsters, gigantic. Yeah. It was it was, it was, a, it was a, at that point it was a one night tournament, yeah. And it was a three or four fights to win. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so he won three fights to win in yeah. one yeah. night, which all, is a all lot. In one night, right? Right. Yeah. Whereas now professional fighters, you know, they've got a fight every couple of months. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, some some fighters fight once a year. Uh, and so, and, and it, it open weight class, open martial arts styles, and he beats them all by, um, uh, rear naked choke, rear naked choke. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and doing guard work, playing the guard, um, yeah. like sit, sitting down, like what, what is, what is this kind of fighting? I mean, that's when, yeah. that's when I got excited again, you can, you can fight by sitting down. Great. I'm a lazy guy. I love this. <laughs> And so that that really blows things up in terms of suddenly Gracie Jiu Jitsu becomes this um, now truly internationally known phenomenon. Uh, but Hickson doesn't fight in um, in the UFC. He goes to Japan. Yeah, yeah. What, he you, you talk about that. Sure. The you know the plan was always that you know Hickson would eventually go in the UFC. Um, and as his brothers, his, you know, and it was, I imagine pretty hard because his younger brother is suddenly considered the most dangerous man alive and he's winning in the UFC and he's becoming this superstar. And, and at that point, Hickson's offered, um, fights in Japan by what previously had been kind of like fixed, uh, professional wrestling um organizations backed by the yakuza and other kind of shady groups they controlled the whole fight game and so he makes it very clear i won't fight a fixed fight you know i'll either do it my way or i'm not going to do it so they they agreed to his rules and um and so they set up uh it was eventually became Pride, which was a very famous, uh, in my opinion, probably the best MMA league that ever existed to Pride, this day. Pride, yeah, it's, it's, it was the Jap. It was like, in layman's terms, it's like the Japanese version of the USC at the time, and it yeah. was so much better. And it was yeah, much exactly. more oriented towards um, towards I think the fighter, uh, not so much the absolutely fans. the the. Um, you know, they, was it like a 15 minute round at one point? And then, yeah. Was- and an, an important thing to add too, is that the Japanese fight audience is very sophisticated. Oh, you they could, under- in the, in the, is it this time of the, the Superdome where there'd be 60,000 people. Right. And you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. And then like these, these polite little golf claps when, yeah. when there's like this slight advance in positioning, dramatically different than the UFC where you got some guy with his shirt off who has literally written just bleed on his face. I mean, yeah. Like, well, like, no. And, and that's one of the things that kind of turned Hickson off about the UFC was the, the illiteracy of the mm. audience and mm. that, you know, they're booing when the fight goes to the ground then, um, you know, and then over time it gets even worse when you have promoters pandering to the stupidity of the audience 
and 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 turning it into you know you have um you know you have all the elements of don king's boxing you have one promotion company owning the contracts to both fighters you have subjective no no pyramid so you have a kind of subjective matchmaking system based on the whims of of one man the great dana white and um and you either live or die by his favor you know you have guys like the diaz brothers famous fighters in the ufc who in my opinion especially the younger brother nate doesn't get the rematches doesn't get the title shots because he smokes weed he's not the perfect guy he's not he's not um he's a little more thuggish than they would like and then you have the very entertaining showman conor mcgregor um who's gets fight after fight after fight and it, and again for, for it, incredible it, amounts of money yeah and mm-hmm. it's and it's spectacle it's yeah. you you know yeah. you go back to the old wrestling model of of heroes and heels yeah. So you have a bad guy, you have a good guy, you you're you have these kind of morality plays, and it's yeah. very successful as a business, but yeah. as a credible organization, it was never near as credible, in my opinion, as as you know the UFC or as Pride in Japan, where you had guys yeah, like Pride still had those bizarre fights. I mean, they they yeah. put together some really bizarre fights that were, um, I mean, they're the famous Don Fry fight that uh, yeah. Uh, that turns into this like it, it literally looks like a hockey fight where they're holding onto yeah. each other, and um, I mean they and they all, they always love some like kind of odd kooky mismatches and things like that. But you also and, have and, the, the, and the yakuza is has a really heavy hand in the Japanese organization. I mean, yeah, this is talked about in the book, and yeah, he Hickson spends some time with some pretty intimidating characters, right? Oh yeah, and he had to be very careful about. You know, he would stay in a hotel and his brother would order his meals. You know, he was afraid that, you know, they would poison him to, you know, at a point, you know, he, they loved him, but they really wanted him to lose. And so Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, and there was huge gambling going on because they, you know, that's part of the organization is gambling. And so... Um, there was a lot of money on these fights. And so um, as time went on, when he kept winning and kept winning and, you know, and they didn't want him fighting the white guy, American MMA guys, they wanted him to fight their, the Japanese heroes. And so, you know, eventually they made him or didn't make him, but they, they matched him against their fame, most famous wrestlers and Hickson said, look, you got to tell this guy, this is a fight. I'm not going in there to do a work or some nonsense. Yeah, wrestlers thing. Being these, these staged uh, professional wrestling things. And, yeah. You know, who were still big, strong, you know, athletic guys who, right. but it's you know, work. but it's exactly. Yeah, and they can, Hickson yeah. is there to fight. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so then he beats those guys and then, you know, so with every victory, the expectations rise and rise and rise and, um, and the money rises and he's making much more money than anyone else at the time. Um, but they really want to see him lose. And, um, 
and you know that it it as I said, it gets more and more intense while he's in Japan. Um, and there's one time he's over there coaching his brother, and there's some dispute as to the a fight gets stopped, and there's some words are exchanged, and and some big heavy kind of thuggy guys show up at his son's hotel room and kind of try to intimidate his son. And, and so that stuff was, you know, kind of par for the course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, um, when he finally retires from, uh, from fighting, what was his record? Uh, you know, the record is always a big subject of debate yeah. because it's kind of like, do you count every jujitsu match victory? Well, do just, you, can- you, yeah. you lose in Japan? Never loses in Japan. Never loses, right? So yeah, never loses in Japan. And uh, you know, if you combine every bout he ever had, he was hundreds and oh mm-hmm. in in informal mixed martial arts matches. I think he was you know ten or twelve and oh something like that. Yeah, so but yeah, but, but but the O is real important here. I mean, he's this is this is why he is such a legend. I mean, he yeah, he never won. He never won a decision. Every match he ever won was by submission. By submission, so by choke or by armbar. Yeah, know, so. and we were trained that way. We were always trained to win by uh you know by never never let it go to the judges. Yeah, and and that was. Wait, Without getting too much into the cultish world of jujitsu politics and rules, I mean, it, this is addressed in the book, but one of his criticisms of contemporary sport jujitsu is the emphasis on points and advantages. And you can you can win a fight fairly early on and then just sort of stall. And that's not in keeping with his understanding of the martial tradition, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And looks at looks upon that as a as not quite the the victory that he would uh he would want. Um not the victory he would want and then steroids you know i mean he never took steroids i can say that um for fact i know that and uh and a lot of guys did i mean yeah. you know what so he i mean he's an amazing physical specimen and the book is titled breathe and the, and as we get into it there's actually quite a bit on his breath work uh could you talk about that and what what that means to him both um physically, but also spiritually. Yeah. I think there's a very interesting teacher. He has a guy named Orlando Connie, who was Brazil's greatest pentathlete, um, which is, I think, obstacles, running, shooting. um, I don't know if there's swimming involved, but he was a former military guy and he was the world champion. So this is an, an athlete who was at one time someone that was Hickson's peer. And he, uh, he has a kind of a philosophy that is all athletes fail. It's what you do when you fail that separates the good from the great. So after Connie retires as the world champion, uh, he goes to India and studies with Sri Yoganda, the father of modern yoga. So, he basically comes up with a, you know, a breathing, uh, you know, I think he's taking bits and pieces from other people, but he incorporates it all into a system that he calls biogenastica of breathing and movement. So it's kind of like moving yoga. And he 
is very uh, adamant about exhalation being more important than inhalation and being very conscious of ridding all the bad air from your lungs, being very conscious of your breathing when you're under stress and pressure. And he, Hickson becomes his greatest pupil he's ever had. And Hickson loves this practice and, and said that it, it, made him probably 50% better as a result that through his breathing, he could control his heart rate. He could control his emotions. He could control a whole host of things that most people think are outside of, of the human ability to control. For example, when he would fight in Japan, he would go to the, the Tokyo dome hours before his fight. He would, um, he would sleep wake up. Then he would do a, a heavy workout, break into a full sweat. And then he would begin breathing to bring his heart rate down as slow as possible. So that by the time he made his way into the ring, his heart rate was much, much lower than that of his opponents. And so as the fight began and, and he would escalate it, his opponent's heart rate would be going up and up and up and up and, and his would be way below it. So he could effectively exhaust opponents really before the fight had almost even begun. And so, and there's a very interesting kind of intuitiveness to his fighting. There's one of his early fights in Japan where he notices his opponents kind of distracted by the crowd and nervous and the bell rings and the guy's just not really, not really mentally there. And like, he doesn't even know the bell had rung because of the crowd or something. And Hickson turns to the ref and goes thumbs up. Ref nods to him, and he just walks right over to the guy like he's he's crossing a street. He doesn't have his hands up really or anything, and and all of a sudden the guy comes to his senses and it's too late. And he's got him in a clinch and he puts him on his back, and um, and it and it was that kind of thing where he could he could he could sense an opening. He didn't force openings, and sometimes they would take longer than others, but he was a very calm and patient fighter and, and would take what you gave him. And, and he would do this, you know, with our, our class, he would say, okay, today I'm only going to go for arm bars on the right arm. And, uh, and you have three minutes and, and it, and he would beat 30 people. And if one guy lasted like, two seconds beyond the time limit, he would go home pissed off and he would, <laughs> and, and that's what he talks about. He goes, I would create ways for me to feel defeat so that the taste of defeat was in my mouth all the time. And so what I noticed when he would train for a fight was that his worst training was like running the st sand dunes, running the stairs. It was not in the stuff in the academy was just what he did every day. And that was just, just kind of staying sharp. He was never really like bringing in tough sparring partners and things like that. No, he trained with his students. He'd line up a bunch of the best guys and go one after the other and get a good workout. But the real workouts were alone and what he did with himself by himself. And what I also noticed was, what a lonely profession this was that yes, he was married. Yes. He had kids. Yes. He had friends and all this, but when those fights were coming, cause he didn't take that many fights. And when he did, 
he was deadly serious about them and his training camps and his diet and everything. And that he would really withdraw into himself because as you know, in fighting, you're the only one who's out there walking into a ring naked by yourself. And, and the kind of, the more comfortable you are doing that, I think the better you're going to be at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a level of intensity when you, you step onto the mat and especially at some of these, you know, like the, um, the Pan Am, uh, BJJ or the, uh, the Mundials, the world championship. Yeah. Um, it's just one, you, one person against one other person. And it, it, I, 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 I can't even articulate it. It was, it's unlike anything I've ever done in my life. And, and also gave me a lot of, um, moments for personal growth, shall we say that I oh, yeah. played into other. Uh, oh, no, years. we had one, the, I was not a big tournament guy, but I was in a few tournaments and the biggest one that was just, was blood sport was Hickson's Academy against Horian's Academy. Oh, and, and, and they picked guys from each side and everybody's kind of belt was held back. <laughs> and man, those were tough, tough tournaments and a uh, <laughs> lot of broken arms, um, yeah. a lot on the line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now the, the book, um, towards the end gets into some really serious trauma in the family yeah. uh, with the loss of his, uh, his oldest son, uh, Hoxon. And uh, was it in the early two thousands? Yeah, it was 2000. Yeah. yeah early 2000. Uh, can you talk a bit about that and, and sort of sure. the impact that had on, on, on Hickson as, as an individual? Yeah. I knew Hoxon well from the time he was a little kid and, uh, and first came to the United States and, and he and Hickson were incredibly close as mm -hmm. you are with a first son. Um, I think in, you know, I have two sons and my relationship with my first son is different. I think, um, I don't know why I just, it is, um, it's not like I love one of them any more than the other, but it's just your first one and you're with them. Uh, and, and, and Hoxon was very much like that with Hickson where, you know, he was his right hand man from the time he was like seven years old. And I think it was very difficult for Hoxon because he was trying to be his live up to his father's reputation, which, which was impossible, you know? Um, and so he wanted to be the fighter that he was. He wanted to be everything that Hickson was and his heart was willing, but he was small. He wasn't built like Hickson. He was extremely good in jujitsu, but he wasn't a phenom like Hickson. He also had grown up as the Prince of Rio, and then he moves to the United States and he's, you know, another Hispanic kid who doesn't speak English that well. And, and initially they're, initially they're not living in, in no. the fanciest part of LA. I mean, later, no. later in his life, um, yeah. they moved to West LA, but it, yeah. So he, they're in, part of LA. yeah, they're in Torrance. He's going to a, you know, a public school with lots of tough inner city kids. And, uh, 
and you know starts getting attracted to kind of the the criminal life for lack of a better word and um he's still involved in jiu-jitsu but as he's growing older he's not winning everything with the ease that his father did he suffers some injuries um i don't think hickson realized that the kind of stuff that he could get away with when he was growing up in Rio, you can't get away with in LA that Mm -hmm. you, you cross some of these Rubicons and you are in serious trouble. And there were times I had, I talked to both Hickson and Hawkson and said, Hey, you got to understand the road that this leads to. This is a road that's going to take you into serious trouble in America. And, um, and lots of small petty stuff um, as a kid, um, but as he gets older, it escalates, and um, he suffers from a knee injury. Uh, I think when he's about eighteen or something like that, um, and has friends who are affiliated with gangs in Los Angeles, and then begins to to get involved in some of that and on his own, um, and then. He is still training hard. He's still heavily involved in jiu-jitsu, but he's also starting to model, and he's very successful as a model. He was incredibly and, and, handsome. And by, by this point, by time late high school, now they're they're very wealthy, and they're living in a much fancier yeah, Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're in but, Pacific Palisades. Yeah. So now he's moved into a fancy part of town, so socially- so he's, still, he's still hanging out with- yeah. Well, he's at the, yeah, he's at the academy, uh, you know, with, with a lot of tough guys. And back then, you know, jujitsu was still tough and you had, you had, you know, like I said, my friend once described, you know, Hickson's men's daytime classes, lunchtime at the prison yard. And you had, you know, you had the weed grower, you know, rolling with the sheriff. You had, you know, the, the scariest guy I ever saw, I think was a, was a prison guard who was on the cell extraction unit. And he was just like a monster. He was like 300 pounds. There was another guy who was um, worked on offshore oil rigs who was the same thing, like 300 pounds. And these guys were much scarier than the John Lewis's and the Paul Vunak's and the Eric Paulson's and stuff like that, who were incredible fighters. I'm not taking anything away from them, but these were professional, dangerous guys, Navy SEALs, you know, professional men of action. They were all coming through there. And, you know, that, that oil rig worker guy, you'd get in his guard and he would just peel your arm away. There's nothing you could do. He was so strong. And so... You know, there was there was plenty of, uh, you know, there was plenty of diversity, shall we say. And Hoxon, you know, Hoxon always liked me. But what he liked about me was that I knew all about the marijuana trade and (laughs) and and the things that that I would I would show him kind of as a cautionary tale would excite him. And I'd be like, oh, no, you know, I'm, I, why, why did I show them that? You know? Like people who watch the first half of Scarface, right? Yeah. And then- <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and I kind of even tried to stage an intervention with a former gang member, a Crip, and it, none of it worked. And, um, and, you know, he was intent on proving himself, 
you know, sadly. And, and I don't think it was happening fast enough for him in jujitsu. He would have been great had he continued at it. He just wouldn't have been the greatest of all time, like his dad. And so, um, you know, he begins to model and he's making decent money. And so he's 18, I think 19 years old and more or less on his own. Um, and he tells his dad, he's going back to New York to model. Um, and initially I think he was, and then he doesn't come home and they lose contact with him. And at this point there, he had been in a car accident and I got a call from Hickson's, uh, ex-wife and she was very worried about him. And, and so I got involved and, and I talked to Hickson, you know, and said, man, you know, this is getting very serious. And, uh, and he said, you know, I haven't heard from him in a, in a month. And, uh, and I'm really, I'm really nervous. And, um, and, and then more time went on and, uh, and I think it was almost two months he hadn't heard from him. And he called his cousin, Henzo Gracie, who was in New York city uh, Henzo had a lot of police as students and they went, uh, to the morgue and they found a picture of him and, and he had been found dead in a, uh, Bowery Flophouse motel of a massive odd overdose of, a broad, weird, strange array of, of drugs, um, that almost seemed like a hot shot or something like that. Um, Murder. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been murder. I mean, yeah. 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 And, and uh, the circumstances we never really found out once it was clear that that's what happened. Hickson didn't seek vengeance, didn't uh, just, you know, basically tried to heal his family first and foremost, because, you know, it was devastating for his three remaining children, his two daughters and his youngest son, Crone. And, um, and I think in trying to heal them, he really didn't heal himself. And it wasn't really until later that the loss fully hit him. And then he talks about, you know, in the book that he really had to make a decision to, to come back. Like if he really was ever going to try to, to live again. And and it really was devastating. Um, for him. And I, I was there, you know, and I saw it. Uh, but again, I think in the, in the first part, he kind of uses stoicism and strength and these martial virtues, um, but they fail him and, and he has to kind of grieve and be vulnerable in a way that he had never been. And in a, in a way he still is in a way, I think that it will always affect him. It's, it's still, a difficult thing, an emotional thing for him to talk about today. Um, and, and, you know, that, that this ideology that serves you so well, um, can't help you through a very human process that really, you know, at some point, almost everyone goes through losing a loved one. Um, and so, he's a different person now. He's, he's not that interested in training champions. He's not that interested in, in, in even really training fighters. He's interested in healing people and, uh, giving, 
kind of broken people confidence they didn't have and expanding jujitsu to the people that could never have done it when you and I were starting, when you had to be tough, you had to fight. He's, he's now going to, you know, for example, he recently went to uh, a psychiatrist who's a friend who had, um, you know, a group of abused people in different ways, abused from parents and spouses and this and that, and, and kind of gave them some tools to, to try to, you know, to heal the damage that they'd gone through. And the tools were really just getting some kind of confidence and agency in yourself and, and things that, that kind of sound like cliches, but he does it in a very physical and tactile way. And, uh, and the one thing I'll say about Hicks and Gracie is I've never met anyone who could size a human up faster mm. in my life than Hicks and Gracie. And he'll shake your hand. He'll look at you. He'll feel you up. He always would do this. He'd shake a guy's hand and then he'd, he'd immediately put his, oh, pat you on the back. Yeah, sure. He's checking out your musculature. And, and it's almost like it's almost like the ECU at the mechanic. Like he's putting the wires in. He's, you know, and it's like he's immediately taking in all this information. F- friend, foe, threat, coward, bully, you know. Situational and, awareness, right? Yeah. But on a level I've never, ever yeah. seen. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think that's why we became friends because he went like, no threat, no foe. <laughs> yeah, you know that 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 section um, towards the end of the book that gets into the the loss of Hoxon was I, I thought really powerful, and I was really impressed with how honest and like as you said how how vulnerable he presents himself in in the book, and that must have been really intense for you guys to work on. Yeah, it was hard, you know, because it was it was kind of reliving it, you know, because. Um, I had lived through that with he and his wife and his kids. And right after that happened, I would make a point of going to see Crone when, you know, Crone was young. Crone is his youngest son. Yeah. And he was 13 or 14 years old and at a very pivotal time in a young man's life. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I always liked Crone. I was always, you know, pretty close to him and, and the daughters as well. And I, and I just, I saw, you know, and his wife above all, um, you know, Kim Gracie was really suffering and, you know, and it, it was hard to see. And it was, um, yeah, so to have to go back through all that a second time and really pull it apart because I just said, look, you know, the fact that he he died of this odd overdose is in the newspaper there's no dancing around this there's no making up a covering story or some kind of thing like that so we got to we got to dive into this and so yeah. any this, any this, tr- ha- this happened during the early days of the internet and with um the jiu jitsu and mma world were on these early f- early jiu-jitsu forums and so forth and there was just i remember when the stories were just flying around and yeah and lots of rumors and shock and you know both like really feeling for um for hickson and for and for hoxson and 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 the family but also just flat out gossiping oh yeah yeah Yeah. definitely and how devastating that would be yeah oh no it was it was uh yeah it was a very hard time i mean and uh 
Yeah, I mean, the, it's in the book, and it was the whoever killed Hawkson sent his suitcase home to Hickson's house with a note in it, which was something I'll never forget that was as chilling as anything I saw at Tulsling Prison in Cambodia. And it was a hand-drawn picture, and it was well-drawn, of a, a, a mound of skulls with the Grim Reaper standing on top of it. And, and I just was like, this is just blood curdling. And, uh, yeah. And so that was, uh, that was how he, we knew that he had been killed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So just to, to move towards wrapping up here, um, what are the lessons that, um, Hicks and, or, and you want readers to get from, um, from breathe? Um, what is what, 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 huh. does Hickson, what does Hickson, what, what does Hickson want to tell us? Um, you know, I, again, I think, um, that's a good question. Um, I've never had it put to me that way, but I think, you know, that at the end of this voyage where he's come out is, is trying to take the lessons, the hard lessons of jujitsu that we've learned and make them, make them more available to more people. And to try to, uh, you know, help people with their lives in a funny way. He's very evangelical now and he, his life is about service and, and service to others. And, um, and he leads a very kind of monastic life and it's the same every day and he gets up and he works out these hours he spends this amount of time with his dogs, this amount of time with his wife. He trains, he does this, but it doesn't change, you know? And, and it's funny because, you know, we're doing the book and it's Harper Collins and we have all these publicists and it's, you know, they can kind of get with their hair on fire. This was a big book. They invested a lot into it and it was a bestseller. It did very well, but, um, but the publicists would start to go nuts and try to, you know, in, incite me and Hickson <laughs> into action. And I said, look, you gotta, you gotta stop. Like, this is not going to work. You gotta, you gotta just, he's going to call, but he's going to call you. I'll tell you the window he's going to call you in and it's not going to change. And it's going to be that way today. It's going to be that way tomorrow. It's going to be that way the next day. And he will get back to you, but it's not going to be in a text 10 seconds after you text them, it doesn't work that way. And, uh, and they eventually got it and, and we all worked together pretty well, but it was funny. Like New York city publicists were not used to dealing <laughs> with the Hicks. And yeah. so then I became like the Hicks and whisperer that they would come to me and I'd be like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've been really generous with your time, and I've got oh, just no two, problem. two questions before I let you sure. go. Um, first, um, can you suggest two books for the audience related in any way to what we've been talking about? Um, Klaus Fitz on War. Okay. <laughs> for okay. Ma- I think All for right. martial artists. Um, yeah. or, or academics. Yeah, or <laughs> academics. Um, gosh, now now you're getting me into. Let me think. What? Uh, my old friend John Donaher. I don't know. I I liked John wrote a book. His second book with Henzo Gracie, 
uh, I think is very good. It's kind of an unusual book, but um, I, I, I knew John I, when I was a professor at Columbia when he was a student and, uh, and I really admire his brain and his very kind of iconoclastic uh, approach to jujitsu, the way yeah, that, so that, for that the, he's the, pulled it apart. Yeah, for the Sorry. uninitiated, um, uh, John Danaher is, is one of the great uh, jiu-jitsu coaches in the world right now. He's a, just produces these absolute champions. Um, and by I've, I've never met him, but I know a number of people who have who swear he's the smartest person they've ever met. Incredibly analytical mind. And he was, yeah. he was, uh, was he a grad student at Columbia? Oh yeah. Then- he was, he was all, but he was an inch away from his dissertation and was so disgusted with academia that he never finished it, and which became, always, yeah. yeah and then just checked into Henzo's Academy and never left, yeah. never left. And just, and I mean, had, yeah, just had been a I, I, pro I, I, bouncer. Yeah. Literally top, like I mean, the top, one of the top instructors in the world. That, um, uh, yeah. So anyway, and I um, and I and I tr- he was one of my more important teachers as well, mm. because I was I was years ahead of him when he came in as a white belt, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he caught up to me in minutes, and then just ran the table, and and uh, similar to Hickson. I was going to Cambodia. I was dealing with real life self-defense. He had been a bouncer in New York city. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed training with him and, and, uh, learned a lot from John and I I have all my old notebooks from Mm -hmm. (laughs) training with him. And uh, finally, what are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a book on the Mayaguez incident, the last battle of the Vietnam War. Um, three living Marines were left behind on a Cambodian island. Uh, they survived for one to two weeks before they were captured and killed by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and I found the Khmer Rouge guys who captured and killed them and, and the Marines who fought. And I have both kind of oral histories of both of those stories. I'm working on another book with Hickson that's more of a kind of a guide to life um, called, you know, the Bible of Invisible Jiu-Jitsu. I'm working on a book about a guy named John Nock who served 27 years for a marijuana and got a $1.4 billion fine for a marijuana conspiracy that he was no part of. Um, and, and was involved in lobbying to him to get him out of prison. And he was released last year. One of the most staggering injustices I've seen in the wonderful American criminal justice system. Um, and I'm writing a lot on my sour milk blog on Substack. Uh, yeah, what, what, give it, give us your blog, and also, where else could I mean, you, where else do we, can we find um, some of your shorter pieces? Um, Sour milk. I'm doing. I I got. I've written. I've written for New York Times, New York Review of Books, New York Newsday, Surfers Journal. I still write for the Surfers Journal, but I got really kind of disillusioned with ju- the direction journalism went once the internet took over and the fact that you had, you know, incredible career award-winning reporters not able to make a living. And, uh, and so I've now gone completely to Substack um, because I have total freedom and my readers pay me directly. 
and in many ways, it's very revolutionary. A lot of excellent first-rate writers are going to Substack for the for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the lanes of of intellectual discourse after 9-11 got increasingly narrow. I'm an odd I, I I'm an odd thinker. I have very different opinions on different subjects than you might think. And it became difficult for me. You know, I was, uh, after 9-11, I watched people from way to the left of me go way to the right of me. And, um, and I, I didn't never really changed. <laughs> and so, um, and I, you know, for example, my first book was pulled into one of the early terrorism cases, the Jose Padilla case. So I wound up working with the defense team of a terrorist in the name of, the American criminal justice system, not because I was sympathetic to aspiring Al Qaeda guys, but I believe in our criminal justice system. I don't, I don't, I don't think we had to go to these kind of star chamber courts in order to deal with these cases. I I come from an intellectual tradition of my PhD advisor, Brigadier General Telford Taylor was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. And if, um, Alan Dershowitz wrote him a letter asking him a legal question. He gave him an honest answer. If David Irving wrote him a letter asking him an honest legal question, he would give him an answer. And that's, I'm, I'm a very, uh, take a very strong position on censorship. I believe really I'm an absolutist when it comes to free speech, because I believe that anything short of that leads to a kind of sophistry that's all too common today, which I'm presently writing about so (laughs) great well hey peter mcguire thank you so much for chatting with me today all right well michael van when i see you uh in santa cruz you know you can choke me and buy me a beer afterwards (laughs) (laughs) well and actually i think i've i think i can time it so i can make uh, i can make a class right now so (laughs) get on the mat so this has been a conversation with peter mcguire about breathe a life and flow which is Hicks and, Grace's, Hicks and Gracie's autobiography. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.